Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I have a very special return guest. Uh, Brandon Braga came on to talk about his super underrated adaptation of Clive Barker's The Books of Blood. Personally, in my opinion, uh, the, the Hulu movie was had a really interesting way of doing a narrative device for the anthology story that we hadn't seen before. And it really impressed me. And so I do want to send people back to that episode to hear Brandon talk about that, because especially writers, if you're here for writing content, and I know most of you are to hear writers get under the hood, that is a really good one. And that's what we're going to do today is we're going to get under the hood of Orville season three, which now I was a fan of the first two seasons of Orville, but season three just knocked my socks off. Now, we're going to get into, uh, and if you want to hear biographical stuff, I did a little bit of that with Brandon, how he got into stuff. We're not going to do that today. We're going to go pretty much strictly Orville today. Brandon, welcome back to Postcards from a Dying World. Oh, thrilled to be here again. Thank you. Now, one cool thing about Orville season three is, and I called it my Sci Fridays. I would watch the Orville on Friday. I didn't watch it right away when it came out. I would watch it on Fridays in a back-to-back with For All Mankind. And there's a lot of Star Trek vets involved in both those shows. How cool was it that these two shows were coming out with you and Joe and Ron and, and, and Andre, like that you're all, you know, doing things in science fiction at this time. It's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that core group of young guys, um, you know, we're still around doing stuff. So. Yeah, and really excellent TV. And it made for, I mean, very different shows, but, you know, very cool for my Friday evening. Yeah. But yeah. And when we last talked, you weren't sure and nobody was sure that there would be a season three of the Orville. So we're going to mostly just talk about the nitty gritty of writing. But, you know, I'm sure some people would like to know because it had to have informed your choices on how you approached the writing of the season, the fact that you guys weren't even sure that it was going to happen. Well, gosh, I can't remember when we talked last. I Season three has been in the works for, uh, for at least two and a half years. Well, I, I can refresh your memory on one thing, that I know you had written many of the episodes, um, but you weren't sure where it was going to air. I do remember that oh. because, yeah, I, I, it may have been at that time that that we that Seth was still in the process of getting the show moved to Hulu, right, and, and it wasn't resolved, and mm-hmm. so I wasn't able to talk about it. But that was the big, you know, when we were breaking the stories uh, for season three and starting to talk about the the kind of the arcs we wanted to do, he was pretty intent on getting the show off of uh, broadcast television. I didn't really, I kind of understood it at first. Um, You know, he wanted uh, longer running times and he didn't want the, you know, the, uh, 
a lot of good stuff was ending up on the cutting room floor and there were nuances that you couldn't get into with the acting and pretty quickly I started to realize oh this is more than just a move off of broadcast this is going to be um, a, a liberation storytelling wise and what happened was we were able to to tell stories with this with this huge scope and ambition that you just couldn't squeeze into a 48 page script and our mm -hmm. scripts tended to be quite long i didn't know how in the hell they were going to be produced <laughs> if they were so huge uh it was really it, it from a writing perspective um we just we just went for it mm. we, we 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 really went for it yeah and we'll get into the individual episodes and how that happened but you know it, it's just i like the idea that you felt liberated by just being able to i mean there's a lot of little ins and outs that that people might not realize about writing that you gotta fit breaks here and then you gotta gotta have time for this and and so it it makes it almost like exactly like what 48 40 42 40, 48 30, minutes 40, 43 minutes about right and and when you're you know when you're in that kind of situation inevitably cuts come in long and mm -hmm. uh you're cutting stuff out and keeping what is essential to the narrative and very often great jokes have to go or a nice character moment or um a scene that was just a little too tangent cool scene but too tangential and i'll give you an example of that a, a, a bit later coming up on a season three episode but um it it also allowed for just more cinema in the visual storytelling you know you're seeing these giant action sequences that are are feature film worthy um mm -hmm. they're just forgetting the budget and and the time it took to make those sequences you wouldn't have the running time on broadcast to do those sequences you needed a feature length running time right and, and, you that, guys and made... that was really what seth was after i didn't fully realize it till till later <laughs> right so seth was the seth had made he up had his a mind vision he you know he had a vision and and to move it to Hulu and and he was really like intent it was moving to off of broadcast and I remember thinking early on god I mean okay so we have a little more running time what's the big deal uh you're used to you wrote 170 <laughs> of those right but but uh it's really only as as we got deeper into it that I realized what he had in mind right and so how many times when you were breaking the stories and doing this w w was he having to remind you guys hey you can do this now you, you can go um you can go or did you guys kind of it just came i think it just came organically we just yeah we just were but we weren't it's just it's all it's a subliminal thing like you when you're working under certain constraints you don't talk about them you just you grasp them on a fundamental level and it right. you just do it um, and even your scripts, you know, when I write a, a 43 minute running time script, it usually comes out of, by some miracle, usually comes out about the right length. Right. But in this case, we've, with those subliminal guidelines, you know, parameters gone, 
it made the storytelling more expansive. Right. Um, it just happened. It just happened. And, you know, it started with the first episode where Isaac commits suicide. That's just not a story that you're going to try to cram in between Colgate commercials. Um, it's not a story that you want to take lightly. It's not mm -hmm. a subject matter that, that you want to handle cavalierly. You know, it needed some, some intimacy and some intricacy in the scene work. Well, and as a Philip K. Dick scholar and podcaster, it was not uh, missed on the PKD community that the episode was called Electric Sheep. That's right. Um, and uh, we certainly appreciated the reference. I don't know um, if oh, uh, if that was Seth or who. Or it was what? Seth. It was yeah. Seth. In fact, yeah. he, I, he, we talked about it. He wanted to make sure it was the right use of the phrase. And I said, yes, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Well, and and do androids dream of electric sheep is very much about the ethics of artificial life. So, um, you know, that was, uh, and animal rights too, but, but specifically artificial life. And, and, and I, so, you know, obviously I appreciated that reference and that first episode and you're right. That was, and, and also considering the episode that you wrote first, the shadow realms, that was a pretty serious, um, tonal shift to take your fans on at the beginning, especially because, you know, the humor was, was fairly light in those episodes. Well, I'm, I apologize for the dog. Oh, that's okay. He must have heard you mention animal rights. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, look, Shadow Realms was um, written as, a, uh, this was long enough ago, I'm having trouble remembering, but that was uh, written for season two and we ended up pushing the, the production of it, I believe. So now it, I, it, I know it, this because offline you told me about Shadow Realms and saying, just you wait, this is so up your alley about how Lovecraftian and Cronenbergian it was. And uh, I, I got special joy out of watching that episode. Yeah. So you, you teased it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, so that episode was actually um, something of, uh, it's an episode Seth very much wanted to make, but um, due to all sorts of factors, including COVID, it got kind of, it, it got pushed. And so um, it's, a, it's a bit of a standalone episode. You know, a lot of season three is uh, serialized storytelling to some degree. Um, but that, that was, the, that's one where we were, you know, discovering new a new species and it's, it's more of an exploring episode you know you know like i said like you kind of teased that one to me so it was very exciting for me to watch and i really love that because i know from having watched so many hours of stuff that you've written that you are a horror guy you like to write horror and you really got to for it seemed like for the first time in the Orville write a horror episode. I mean, this is a very frightening episode of the Orville and putting your, your characters in some pretty horrifying situations. So everyone kind of accredits this to like that tonal shift of season three. But you're saying this is one that you guys had had conceptualized as far back as season. I think two. so. Yeah. They're 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 meshing together a little bit, but um, 
I think so. I don't know. I'd have to. <laughs> I'd have to. Look, I'd have to look. But it it definitely was uh, more of a standalone episode. It, it 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 has a it has some Isaac Clare thematic material in it um, yeah. that I know for sure they. You know, actually, now that I think about it, that story only worked if they were broken up. So I guess it was a season three episode. I don't know. There was COVID really screws with the timeline. <laughs> right, it, of course. It's, 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 I feel like I'm in a Philip K. Dick story where my memory is being screwed with. But um, yeah, it probably, I guess it was, had to be after she they broke up, which would be post-identity right in season two so it could be season two anyway it was a fun episode it was yeah it was horror i love horror um i was able to do a, a bodily transformation um i always like those howard Berger, who's our makeup guy special effects makeup guy who has a book coming out soon about uh the history of special effects makeup a guy who's cut his teeth on day of the dead with george romero who has worked on so many great movies so it's such a thrill to work with people like that that's the best part yeah. of my job really is meeting these people you know and asking questions about how they did stuff totally uh, so we and uh we had some good aliens and and the means to do some of it with the cgi enhanced so it wasn't just guys in suits well, right. And one of the things, too, about the imagery that you guys came up with is that it um, it reminded me a little bit of um, the Toby Hooping movie Life Force yep. with the ships, which was really cool. Like that was a great uh, kind of cool reference. But one of the things is that's based on the Colin Wilson novel, which is very Lovecraftian. Space and, vampires. That's right. And um, I love the cosmic dread and feel of it and i love that you guys set up that episode with talking about the idea of myths and haunted houses and all those things that was a really smart foreshadowing for what comes in the story so um i really appreciated that aspect of how it was written yeah so i mean it, it was it was the krill weren't wrong that, that there were demonic forces at work but that's just what they chose to interpret them through a more of a religious lens, but they, they sure as hell weren't wrong. Yeah. And I love that that conference scene kind of took on like a campfire, uh, the yep. conference room scene kind of took on like a campfire feel to it. It's funny because it's a great example of breaking the, the rules of writing to come up with. And I know Star Trek had to do this all the time too, but the show don't tell kind of thing where that's a scene where the telling is the power of the scene, the Krill telling them the myths and telling them those things. And so that's really cool. Like how oh, that worked out. So much, so much of horror is um, what, what I, what they call onset, you know, and dread. I mean, the exorcist, nothing happens for an hour, you know, it, it's all dread because right. Because you know something bad's going to happen. You heard how horrific the movie was. If you if you're old enough to remember seeing seeing it when it came out, I was an unfortunate like I think I was nine. Never should have snuck into that movie. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, a lot of it's a lot of it. You got to set up the 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 dread. 
And this was an episode that where the audience really knew nothing about this new species. So, and the krill themselves are kind of scary. So what, what could they be afraid of? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that's cool too, about the Orville is you guys aren't afraid to nod to the things that you love and are influenced by. And uh, I, especially, yeah, and there's so many like that there's that lovecraft feel there's that that kind of cosmic horror thing going on but one of the things that's really cool too for me as a, a defender of star trek the motion picture the scene where they went in really reminded me of going into viger and mm -hmm. one of the things about that movie that i think is underrated is that's that's a really if you really get into the shoes of everybody going onto the ship whether you're talking motion picture or you're talking to the orville that's a frightening thing to do yeah to take you know, your ship into that. And the dread was really fully realized. And I liked also that the musical score kind of nodded to Jerry Goldsmith a little bit too. Well, that's all set, you know, and he may have been thinking V'ger when he was working with the composer. I don't know. You'd have to ask him, but um, there's no need to defend the motion picture. I, I, I would hope at this point that people recognize that it's a great movie. Yeah with the sexiest enterprise of them all. And uh, my favorite of them anyway, and just a great score, a, a, a defining score uh, and a storyline that is really uh, mysterious and interesting. And it is absolutely the most science fiction Star and, Trek and, ever got. And a, and a mature, almost Kubrickian, Stanley Kubrick-like uh, sensibility to it. It, it and and the perfect thing that they picked it up uh later on like don't pretend like it's tomorrow on the, like i like that they they embraced the nine or ten years that had gone by yeah and kind of picked up the character i i think it's a great movie i love that movie and that a, a brand new restoration just came out yeah um, it's like it's awesome yeah well i'm glad we got a chance to defend the motion picture because i i also am a big fan and I always defend it as being the most science fiction of Star Trek. And one of the things I love about the motion picture is it gets the grandiose size of space, you know, more than than any other Star Trek did. And, and I was, appreciated it, it, that. It, we could you, we do a whole podcast on this movie because, I mean, what a tough, what a tough thing. Like, what are you going to do? Like, what story is going to satisfy? I think maybe people were a little bummed that that it the crew wasn't coherent like they used to be. Maybe it wasn't as funny. I, I don't know what it was, but it was what story was going to satisfy everybody, you know, on that one. Yeah. Uh, but you had Kirk on the bridge of a new enterprise. What I mean, that that should that's enough. Yeah, it should be enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um yeah. One of the things, too, that I liked in Shadow Realms is Dr. Finn is very fierce in the end. And so that storyline with her and her ex, who's the Admiral, what's really good about that is, is, is as horrific as the episode is, to have a very human story at the center of it is a very important counterbalance to, um, to make sure that, you know, we have, we have kind of a, a point of view in the story. So um, I wonder if you could... Tell me about uh, what you guys were thinking with Dr. Finn in specifically Shadow Realms. We, we were looking for um, an ex of hers to come aboard um, and we knew he would get infected first. And, 
you know, we were playing, I think, a little bit with expectations of, you know, is she going to reach the humanity inside him? And and in this case, no, it, um, it was she wasn't going to reach him necessarily. She was going to require threatening to kill him. Um, but there's one great line. You know, it, it's 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 successful in what it's trying to do, but it, I don't think it's like the greatest scene in the world. But it does have one great line where she says something about, you know, I'm stubborn. I'll you know, I'll I'll kill you. And you <laughs> right. You, yeah, I mean, it, it, if it, it, it kind of needed that a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, and also, it, it kind of kept the uh, Isaac Clare um, dynamic alive, too. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Um, well, and one of the things that I um, appreciate about, you know, what, where you guys are at in, in this storyline at this point, too, is that. You know, right now, like this is only the second episode of this season. So I think that what whether you intended for it for an earlier season or, or not, what it does here was is it had everyone spending a little bit of time being like, whoa, the, the Orville is pretty serious now or they're taking this pretty seriously now. And it's funny because I know some people were like, you know where's the humor going to go and then the next episode you know which we're not going to get too deep into because you didn't write it but is a pretty funny episode and so you know i really liked the balance that the season had where you know we're kind of going back and forth with so, some of these tonal shifts they they worked for me they they really oh, i think they totally work i mean the balance seth intended was always have, have to be it was going to be heavier on the on the drama and the science fiction storytelling and the, with the comedy frosting some episodes like the final one of this season which seth wrote is has bordas dressed as elvis i mean i don't know how more broad you can get it's, it's hilarious but yeah. not all the episodes are that way and it, when something serious is going on it it this all kidding a, aside it isn't a satire of science fiction i mean it is science fiction at least that's our our goal yeah and i i really appreciate that too is that you know there's been a couple times where i've talked to people who have maybe seen a few episodes here and there and they refer to it as satire and i always correct them and say no 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 it's not satire it's it's not a satire show it's not a spoof of science fiction it it is science fiction it is a science fiction show and one of the cool things is, is that you guys don't have the weight of a pre-existing franchise to kind of you know do what what you want to do whereas you know it, to give people the the people that you know, want more Star Trek, want more Star Wars. They want more of these things, but here's a new version. Now we're not weighted down by canon and we can do kind of do what we want, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's one of the fun things about that. So now, okay. So Gently Falling Rain was the next episode that you and Andre wrote. Um, and um this was the first one that prompted me to send you an email and just be like, whoa, dude, that was great. And part of it was, and you guys could have had no idea what the timing was going to be of this episode coming out um, and what was going on in the real world with the 1-6 committee, with the January 6th committee, and with the, 
the Supreme Court changing the abortion laws and, and all these things. And what people have to realize and understand is, is that you guys had written this a long time before that. You filmed it a long time before that. And the timing is just kind of coincidental. Shocking. I mean, there's a scene with a, a dealing with a, a, a abortion, which is a scene that, by the way, probably wouldn't have made it to broadcast possibly because of the subject matter but certainly for running time that's one of those yeah. scenes that, that goes yeah that, um but it was pure coincidence i mean the roe v wade decision was overturned and that episode aired a few days later i mean that's how close it was the january we wrote this episode after uh not you know maybe a year or two after trump was elected i mean that's how long ago this episode was written and so none of the things that are most resonant politically, socio-politically about the episode, well, we could have foreseen. It just happens that way sometimes. Right. And when we get into the episode, we'll get more to that because Talea's role and that, you know, that opening scene where she's riling up the crowd and she's doing all that, like considering that this is airing during a time when the the one six committee is happening and look you're a twilight zone guy i know you are brandon you're a twilight zone i was just i was just raving about an episode today <laughs> yes you're a twilight zone guy and how many times did this happen to rod serling right he wrote you know where the monsters are due on maple street long before you know you know it got into the consciousness and things were going on and People were seeing it come to life. And that opening speech that Talea gives is very chilling when you've just been watching the one six committee on the news earlier that day. And it, you know, and and so the idea of turning someone that Ed, you know, had had feelings for or had been in this situation with before and turning her into the Trump, that's I'm sure that was a writer's room decision. I'm sure when you guys were breaking story, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right. So this is something that you guys all talked about, but that that's a pretty serious decision narratively to, to, to do that. Um, and I'm kind of interested in, you know, did you guys have concerns about bringing her in or did it just make no. sense from the beginning? It made total sense. I mean, first of all, she is a, a, a krill who was in a unique position in that she lived lived amongst the humans she got a bird's eye view of what they're really all about and she came out a, a little bit of a hero um and some i've read some things some comments online how could a school teacher become a a, a leader of krill and it's like look at there's some presidents in our history who's had humble beginnings I mean, yeah, it's, it's not not, a, I think, valid criticism at all. They don't all have to be reality TV stars. Yeah, um, exactly. But we knew we wanted a child to be part of it, a, an Ed to lay a child. Well, remember, Hitler was a cartoonist. <laughs> Hit, Hitler was a cartoonist and um, Ronald Reagan was a B movie actor. Yeah. Um, so nothing against b-movie actors uh but 
but we knew we wanted to continue that relationship, but we knew, you know, I don't remember how we concocted all of the elements, but we, we thought it would be cool that Talea was, would become this, um, kind of leader of, of the krill and a radical and, um, and have this secret love child. Right. And one of the cool things that you guys have done with the Orville, which is that with Dr. Finn having a relationship with a very robotic looking robot <laughs> and Ed having had this child with a very alien you know, Krill is, I love that on the Orville, you guys have just like in this future that people aren't just, gonna, they're just not going to notice that thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just, well, just not going to care. <laughs> it is just, it, it, it's this, it really is a testament to the human imagination that we even accept, accept these things because a guy in this goofy robot suit, and it's a testament to P Penny's acting that any of it works at all yeah and that it would be emotionally engaging at all is is kind of a miracle that it all comes together and it, it doesn't always but um it's what i love about so much about science fiction mm -hmm. it's it's it just allows you to look at love in a new way at heartbreak in a new way well and i'm wondering too because yeah penny's performances in the show are really incredible and um her growth as an actress i just think is is so so impressive and even just in the time that you've been doing the orville like what she's been able to sell in that character as dr finn has been really impressive i'm sure you guys have written to that as oh, yeah yeah as oh, seth always had penny in mind for that role always mm -hmm. it was a done deal like she so it, we always, yeah, we write to Penny. Yeah. And, and she totally delivers. And I think selling the, you know, it's funny because people will talk about, you know, your Meryl Streep's, you're th these big actors, but has she ever had to sell a romance with a robot like that? Like, or a blob or a, a CGI blob, you know? Right. It's like, right. and by the way, Penny is just unflappable about it all like she is she's committed yeah and, and it and it's there on screen <laughs> um it, it's really good um now one of the things about yeah so when the beggars on the street of krill like this was a little detail for me but it was something that um when i'm when i'm going when i'm watching the orville and yeah when i knew i was going to talk to you i went back and watched and i took a few notes here and so but one of the things that I thought was really, really important about some of the nitty gritty details that you guys got there was, for example, the beggars on the streets and the different, the fact that there were krill that wanted peace, that were doing those things. These seems, these, these little details seem like things that you might not have been able to do without the running time, for example. That's right. Right. That's, that's that's a great insight. Yeah. Look, the, the we talked about Krill being a, a, a kind of a capitalist society of, and a successful one. Um, uh, it's a free market society. Uh, they, you know, there are some references to its grand marketplace and 
you know, and they're very proud of it. And it's a kind of a glitzy place, you know, mm. when you're coming in for a landing, you know, it's there's a lot of Blade Runner image kind of vibe there. But we we definitely scripted in that there were that there were homeless people mm -hmm. and, and that there were certain aspects to the society that would give it a, a little extra dimension. Things aren't perfect here. It isn't a planet of these people. There's right. there are differing opinions and that you can't do that in the shorter running time. You you like you've got to just get to the story, get to the daughter, get to. I mean, if where would you? I don't know where that came in. Seventy minutes, seventy five. I don't know where how long that one ended up being, but where would you cut an, a half hour out? Right. You know yeah. of that episode. Where would it? Where would it come? And you so, would start targeting some moments that gave it dimension. Right. And probably in the past, you might have been like, oh, we're going to have to push this out and do a two-parter or something like that. And then you get into, you have to sacrifice other episodes. So what's cool here is, is that, you know, by pushing that running time and sort of having a movie, and it's, it's funny too, because when you put on the episode and you see the runtime as a fan, you're like, Oh, that's awesome. I get another, get another 20, 22 minutes, you know? Um, and that's just, that's a nice feeling. But as far as that societal thing goes too, one of the interesting aspects is even though the Krill have the, you know, the kind of the regressive views on abortion and those kinds of things, it doesn't mean that Talia isn't able to eventually, you know, confront the Mocklins about, you know, their culture. And it's one of the cool things that you guys got to invent these new cultures and explore those things. And we'll get back into that when we get to Domino, because that is one we're really going to want to talk about. But as far as the abortion thing goes, you're right. I mean, broadcast TV, that would have been, well, still like, I'm not sure. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm not the, sure what you would have ended up with there, the but key, in the key, look, this scene is it's a horrifying scene. Mm -hmm. the, the, the scene was was not to make a political statement, but a cultural statement. I mean, Talia, in her culture, you have, I mean, it's something you don't do for whatever reason, whether it's illegal or punishable, or you believe it on a deeply spiritual level. Um, it. it it, it's it's a horrifying scene to any any rational person, but that's how it is there. Well, and and I can tell, and and I know you guys are so close to it because you wrote it and you're out there. But you know, watching the conversation that happened around this episode on Twitter, that you know people are contemplating like having to donate money to funds to take people across state lines. We have that case of the ten year old from Ohio that had to go to Indiana. And you have all these things going on. So it really hit home with people. And I, I think that there was a certain degree of comfort that fans of the show felt from, from being like, you know, like our show sees how we're feeling, even though you didn't know because you wrote it so long ago, but I think it yeah. was really you know, important it, timing. It was, it was, I don't want to call it lucky timing because there's nothing lucky about what's happening. But initially, that was an idea that we talked about 
that Seth initially thought maybe we would do a whole episode about this and you know but we couldn't figure out how to get into whatever culture it was that had these views and this he was he was particularly interested in the form of the punishment and somehow getting our people involved mm -hmm. and it just never we could never quite get it into a full-fledged episode but we and we realized well let's just take what's best about that idea and make it part of our story in this episode with because of it fit perfectly because of the child you know Talia leaves her perch to take ed down to, <laughs> to show him this yeah. which is a little awkward but then again it is their kid and she wants to make a point right well yeah. and and i think what's interesting that and a good note for writers out there is that you couldn't fix this you couldn't figure out how to nail down the story as its own thing and you found a way to work it where it made perfect sense in this other story and that's a that is a, a writer's trick for solving things with if you like i know i've got a good idea here and i may not be able to build a whole thing out of it but i can find a way to put it in here and then it makes perfect sense because it sets up storylines with ed and talea in the future where you know the daughter is always going to be a weight between them it's always going to be a thing between them but it's also, and here's what's genius about it, it's also a connection between the two cultures because now you have a, a, a person who is part human and part krill. Right. And so what looked like a problem, I can't fix this episode. I can fix the whole show. I can help the whole show out by putting it in here. Very so, smart decision. Well, it, it also is a testament to writerly patience because when we talked about that abortion idea as an episode, it would come up again and again, and we'd talk about it. And, and at some point you just have to move on and, right. and say, well, it'll come back. If it's a good idea, it'll come, it'll rear its head again, but we have to move on. It's not working. Right. And, and um, sometimes whether you're writing a scene that isn't working or talking about an idea, at some point you, you move on and maybe you'll never talk about it again or maybe you'll see where how it should be used and that that just takes a certain amount of discipline and, and patience and and accepting that something's not working in the moment how often when you were sitting there spinning these ideas did you ever did you guys ever just like smile at each other and go this is really radical science fiction <laughs> <laughs> you know we're not that self-congratulatory uh, <laughs> uh but you know i do think because the fans I, do that we do that I, I mean look i always thought seth's conception of the mocklins was solid gold like and and i and i'm happy to see and and perhaps my favorite thing about the orville is is the clyde and bordis relationship Mm -hmm. uh which is oh we'll drill down on that in a little bit which is just a, a wonderful um aspect of the show and I, I do think when you wrote their best scene by the way and i'm gonna come back to that okay so. <laughs> uh, but the i do think when we were 
working out the story for about a girl in season one with the sex change, Topa's sex change, we knew it was going to be a, defi a defining moment for the show because it was risky. It was, uh, and it was a later episode that Seth moved up in the air date because he wanted to make a declaration. This is what the show is. Mm. And, um, but we, I, that was the closest we ever came to like, okay, well, we're, we're going to try this and we're going to end it this way. And, uh, and it's going to be really dicey and, and controversial. Right. And since Seth is the creator and the showrunner, I'm sure, I'm sure, because I'm going to talk just a tiny bit about Tale of Two Topas because it sets up um, Midnight Blue. And, um, but I'm sure you guys are constantly the way these things work. You're passing scripts back and forth and giving each other notes and thoughts and, and things on when you bring in the, the whole Topa storyline and, 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 and doing that, it, you know, I think for me, it, that is the moment where you were right. You guys knew you were stepping into these big issues and what was really great for I think a lot of people is the tale of two Topas episode really just you know it was very heartwarming for people who you know and obviously I haven't gone through I'm a cis male guy, but I I did live with somebody who transitioned in 1999 before it you know there was more information I had a a, a roommate in 1999 so with Tale of Two Topas, one of the things I'm wondering about is, especially in this world now, today, we all have people in our lives that are going through some of these situations and these things. I'm, I think a lot of people felt really seen in the Tale of Two Topas story and Midnight Blue um, in the transgender community. So I'm wondering, like, do you have, do you guys have somebody in your orbit who was there to help you guys with, with that aspect of the story? Cause it's, it, it comes off very personal. You know, you don't, I don't, I can't speak for Seth. I, I mean, I know some transgender people. I mean, I know, um, I remember when Orville first premiered, I had a limo driver who had transitioned um, and was really uh, grateful for the storyline, even though it was in its infancy, so to speak, at that time. Um, you know, Seth was, was, is very cog was very cognizant of being sensitive to how this was being executed. You know, the, you know, were people going to, you know, the, the person playing Topa is a, a young, is a, is a female. Yeah. Should be female or male. Like, how, how should we do this that's, that's gonna be acceptable? Um, by the way, amazing young actress playing that role. Oh, um, she was incredible. But yeah. um, um, whether or not Seth knows any transgender people, I can't say. But, um, you know, it's, to me, it's it's about that issue for sure. But it's also about relationships and fathers and daughters and and parents and it the, the core themes are universal and the reason that perhaps some people are crying when they're watching the end of 
Midnight Blue, when Clyden comes back, has everything to do with a father and a daughter. And whatever issues they have, whether or not you relate directly to it, you relate to all of the emotions going on around it. And I'm going to drill down on that scene in a little bit. But so, but one of the things going on here too is that because the Mocklin are created to be this ultimate misogynist society, um, like there, there is a thing in this world, unfortunately, that with genital mutilation is like a thing that happens sometimes, usually for control in a patriarchal sense. And so the whole Mocklin culture and all those things, you guys have so much to play with there. It's not just an issue of, you know, because it is an issue these days that a lot of people deal with that their child comes home and says, you know, I'm transgender. Now I got, now we as a family, we have to deal with this, but it goes a little bit deeper with the Topa storyline because um, it's also an issue of survival because um, of how, you know, misogynist their culture is right so mm -hmm. it comes into a, a totally different thing and, I, and it's I also will... about it's also about culture it's about cultural differences it's about identity and everybody can relate to these things you know whether or not you're transgen transgender yourself or whether or not you're a mocklin it it shouldn't matter ultimately when it when it comes to what's happening emotionally and one of the things that's what was cool is so there's there's a, a YouTube personality, uh, so a woman that goes by the name Jesse Gender, who's a transgender, like social critic, and she's um, and I mentioned her work before, where she was talking about um, seven of nine and being on the spectrum. Well, we talked about that one of the times we talked before, and um, but I listened to her review of the Midnight Blue episode, and and it was and it was good because. You know, she was talking about how she related to a lot of the transgender issues in the episode Midnight Blue and was very happy with it. Um, and, and that's great to hear, by the way. That's very, very good to hear. Yeah. And I would definitely say um, you should check out that review because I, I'm going to. Uh, yeah. From a very specific place of one of the things she talked about was the scene, the torture scene and the depersoning of of Topa like and how you know this is an experience that she had that she has constantly because she's a person that's out there on twitter where people will insult and say these things to deep person her as a female and you know and all these issues and so for that scene and she actually said that she was glad that you showed that that whole scene where they basically torture her because as hard as it was to watch it was something that she related to and felt like it's something that transgender people go through emotionally yeah all, all the time it starts on the shuttle ride you know the with the where she doesn't know why they've taken her or where she's going and and they're pretty brutal verbally um that's where the torture begins right and look we've gotten to some heavy issues with midnight blue, but we got to talk about Dolly Parton too. <laughs> like um, how did that happen? Was that, how did the idea of, of the, the Mocklin women, the underground community being Dolly Parton fans come about? And that's a, that's a, 
that's Seth. That was his genius idea. And um, I love Dolly Parton. Uh, I based that, or Andre and I based that scene on uh, a real life experience that uh, I did some biographical research online. And I found this story about, you know, that she grew up in a cabin in the mountains and this story where her toes got cut off. And, you know, we were looking for a story for her to tell um, that would resonate with the main story. In terms of whether or not we were going to get Dolly Parton when we were writing it, we really had no clue. Right. Uh, that was going to be Seth's doing his thing. You know, um, <laughs> he had heard, I think, uh, that she w was loving the references to her on the show, that she liked the show. So I think uh, we knew we had a shot. Um, and it happened during COVID. It all went down during COVID. So I wasn't there when they shot it. They shipped the mountain set to Tennessee where Dolly was and uh, shot the scene there. And right. uh, her part of it anyway. And so I I'm bummed to say I didn't get to meet Dolly Parton. <laughs> which I was so excited about when we were, you know, we wrote this pre <laughs> pre COVID. Um, so I'm, I think I'm going to try to get her to autograph a script. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, um, it, 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 you know, it's that, that's, that's the Orville at its best, you know, it, it's, it's resonant. It feels uh, honest, but it's funny too. And somehow it, it's all working. No. And everyone keeps wondering I've seen a lot of people asking, was that her idea to wear the rainbow suspenders? Did she do that on her own? <laughs> or um, That's a great question. I suspect ward that the wardrobe people on the Orville provided her with a with the, Yeah, I, I can't say for sure. It's a very good question. <laughs> a lot of people have been asking that. It's been interesting to see that. Yeah. And I said I wasn't going to get into this show stuff, that I was going to stay under the hood <laughs> as a writer, but... That's well, I don't know. It's a great question. I'll find out. I'll find out. <laughs> well, and and so it must have been so. I mean, did you ever think like? I mean, you had to. Did you have a backup if he couldn't get Dolly Parton, or nope. you were just going to cut that scene? If... No backup. Well, that's an important scene. That scene is a huge turning point. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Dolly Parton. It's saves Dolly, the day. Or, it was Dolly or nothing. Right. Oh. Right. Well, you guys pulled it off and that was um and and that was great. Uh so I think one of the okay, I want I hate when people compare Orville and Star Trek to for a certain degree because you and I've talked about this before. It's a big tent, there's room for everybody. We can we can have everybody. We we all love Star Trek, we all love these things, but but the one thing that you guys not being part of the Gene Roddenberry universe or being your own franchise is you get to make decisions kind of on your own and you're creating. And so the trade union deciding not to respect Mocklin culture and to make the decision based on the ethics of this one person's life now, I know you guys don't sit around and think about how radical this is for science fiction, but that decision, as I sat in my chair watching the episode, I thought very deeply about, whoa, that's something. The fact that they're choosing 
the ethics. So did you guys talk a lot about that decision, like yeah. as a writing room? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are huge plot maneuvers. You know, the Mocklands leaving the union is was going to be a big deal politically and also personally, because now you have a, um, a Mockland family on the Orville um, who are going to have to leave their culture and disavow their their home world. Um, it was going to set up the huge events to come. And I think what you're what you're liking about it though is that it what and this is even true to some extent in the in the episode domino you know what we're defending are our ideals you know we're not just we're not just defending yes. and and i think you maybe even said that um in your email and I, I may be thinking of someone else but um, no i did say that to you in an email because uh, that is something that blew my mind about domino and, and yeah. that's and that's kind of a, a similar situation. Like a a child was kidnapped and tortured, and yep, that's that's the we draw the line there. And you're I know, Ford has said it best: you're liars and you're butchers. Yeah, and in a very powerful scene. Yeah, and um, Clyden's apology scene was a tearjerker. Um, you had to know writing that scene what you were doing that one broke a lot of people that was i def dog said it all <laughs> you know it, that's one of those things when we were sitting i remember in andre and i were in our my office i knew when we were writing it i got choked up you know the key to that scene is that topa completely loves her dad so much that she is just happy to see him yeah and uh the line papa you came back gets me yeah uh and it's one of those scenes there i, I yeah i i was i didn't let andre see that i was choking up <laughs> it was too embarrassing but it was one of those things where um, I hoped it worked, on, it worked on the page, but, you know, until it's, you know, on its feet and you just never know for sure. And then when I saw the first time I saw the scene cut together, I was with Seth sitting right next to me and he was showing me some scenes from the episode. And I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, I'm, here it comes. I'm going to, I can't. I can't break down in front of Seth. I just, I, I got to be cool. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, no, no. Let but, it fly. But, but, but it's so beautifully acted and it's so, it's, it, it, it feels um, very earned dramatically. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it because if you, I mean, if this is all about moving people. You know, there there are big ideas and there's all this stuff, but none of that sticks if you haven't moved the audience. And that's a that that I was very happy to see. And it wasn't entirely clear till it aired how people were going to react to it. And yeah, I think and it was very powerful. And so and how did you feel after it aired? That had to be good feeling. Uh, that uh, one. It was well, it certainly validated that I wasn't a complete ninny when it when when I got when I choked up about it um 
it it it, it felt authentic, and and it's all about. It's just such an it, it, that that all despite all of the epic things happening in in the episode that it would all come down to this tiny little intimate moment between a father and a daughter. To me, that's it was just great. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> I just have a few more questions about Domino, because um, to me. But okay. you wait. You tell me. Did you get choked up? Yes, you got choked up. Yeah, I got choked up. I got choked up. <laughs> yeah, and um, and the dogs worked up now about it. So, um, but yeah, I found that scene to be really powerful, and I think the performance with Bordis and Clyden. It, it it's funny too because their relationship is has so many hilarious moments that and and it was brutal when Clyden left you know his daughter and partially because we we all know of you know those of us who know lots of people with transgender issues like this happens where parents just cannot accept it cannot accept it and nine times out of ten they come around right so I think with the Bordis and Clyden storyline too, you get sweet moments with them in the last episode, you know, um, when <laughs> Clyden's the only one that really thinks he did a great job. being <laughs> best man. And it's funny because um, I tried to explain how funny that scene was to my wife. It's not very into science fiction. And I was trying to explain the how funny the all kidding aside thing was. And, you know, I was like, okay, it doesn't translate. But let me tell you, it's partially like those, you know, and I don't know those actors' names, um, but they, man, they've really done great work for yeah. for making that. Peter, Peter Macon and Chad Coleman. Yeah, they've done a great job. And I think Clyden, if he didn't reject topa originally and then come around it wouldn't have been as powerful and it really gave everyone watching that who are fans of the show a cathartic release yep absolutely and uh, <laughs> um all right so domino was a big deal um for your last episode and in a sense you kind of got to update a storyline you've done before with Scorpion and Voyager in a, in a real smart way. Um, because the whole alliance between the Kalon and the Union, which, you know, you set up very well by having the Krill and the Mocklin kind of go through their thing earlier as well, right? And I loved that the Krill in this episode were and, and um, Talea was able to kind of confront their misogyny. And I thought that was just such a, a really great way to kind of turn things around because she, you've set her up in this villainous role. And yes, she is a villain kind of in this situation, but she's right there, right? And then, and the reason why I bring up Scorpion uh, with Voyager, and, and that's one of my favorite storylines you did in Voyager um, is because whoever saw Janeway making an alliance with the Borg, right? And she did it because she had to. But what was the cool updating here was, and, and this is the thing that I said to you in my first email that I sent you, was 
everything that the union sacrifices in the episode domino comes down to protect not protecting the union skin because they're not under threat they now have the weapon they're not afraid of um the Kalon anymore they don't have to be but they sacrifice everything and you have one character who specifically sacrifices everything for ideals not for we have to save our planet we have to save our solar system we have to save our lives we have to save our ideals and in a sense it's an updating of what you did with scorpion and i love seeing writers like be able to to you know kind of update ideas they've already worked on is janeway had to sacrifice her ideals to to win and survive which was great well, to get her to get her family home, yes, exactly. But in this case, it's all about ideals, and it was so brilliant. I love that. Um, did you guys talk about that, or was that a happy accident of just where the storyline came together? No, it, it absolutely. I mean, it's part of the story. I mean, characters are discussing when the weapon is invented. There's a very important scene with with uh, John Lamar and Charlie and some others. Uh, the dinner table scene talking about what are the ethical implications of this i mean there's a discussion at you know the union council it's a big deal you know how do you know, we have a genocidal weapon at our disposal what are we how are we going to handle this it was very much discussed and part of the dna of the of the story right and i think too it wasn't enough um you know so the super weapon in this thing, and I love the weight of the moment that, you know, that they have on the, on the bridge that they're really given a chance. You can see on their faces like, oh shit, what did we just do? You know? And I think you guys giving power to that moment was really, really important right there. Um, yeah. And, and astounding visual effects. Yeah. And that reminds me, I remember when we were talking about, uh in one of our last interviews you said you said you were jealous of the effects on the new star trek well you guys brought it this season so <laughs> yeah, that's all seth and brandon fayette our visual effects supervisor and brooke nuska our our visual effects producer um you know what can i say i mean i don't think i've never seen a space battle that big on tv yeah it was I mean, it was incredible i've been involved in a lot of space battles and that one, that one takes the kick. Right. And so Burke's sacrifice, you guys were kind of setting this up the whole season. Yeah, I mean, that like, was Seth, Seth's late. That was his idea. A whole, that was kind of like from the beginning, her character was introduced to be a point of view character for a lot of the audience who was saying, how, how is this character allowed to be on the bridge? Right. You know, um, she, but he, he knew she, you know, it was his idea that she was going to sacrifice herself. It was mm -hmm. even, you know, I, I believe he pitched it to Ann Winters, the actress. And then you had to be the one to figure out how she was, how she was going to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we, the, the genocidal weapon, I'm not sure where that idea came in. Uh, mm -hmm. If it came up at the end of the season or not. But well, what, uh, yeah, and another thing that's different from the Kalons that's different with the Kalons from the Borg is that they kind of redeem themselves 
they learn they learn from Burke's sacrifice, right? And and especially coming to Isaac's wedding and the episode, and then of course the hilarious scene where the whole fleet shows up. Um, <laughs> you know, which is cool because you take this really dark episode and set up a joke for the next episode, and that's like you know, kind of the Orville in a nutshell, right there. And so real, real brilliant um, there, but you know, I, I, what I, I also want to point out too, and I'm wondering if you guys thought about this, but I saw uh, the very first like comment I saw online, I have a uh, shout out to, to my buddy, um, even Zorik, who's uh, um, lives in Portland a friend of mine, he's a, a Serbian science fiction writer and he the first thing he said was about domino was he posted this was new hope level storytelling i didn't know what he meant but then when i got to watching it i was like oh it's the way the battle is formatted with the three storylines was that intentional very much so um i can't remember how much of the of the final battle was worked out in the writer's room but i do remember when we were writing the finals Seth wanted a big, I mean, he made it really clear. He wanted a big finale. He wanted a big or finale to this storyline anyway. And I do remember thinking um, the way to make this cinematic is to be intercutting between multiple action sequences. Um, and I remember also thinking, good luck producing this. <laughs> right. Because... Uh, but, you know, again, that's all Seth and the visual effects team and um, coming up with, you know, and obviously not not a cheap show. Um, but we we really wanted to, again, take everything to the next level. I mean, that's what New Horizons refers to. I mean, the ship got to refit the ship, every, the, the ship, the visual effects and the storytelling. Those were, you know, they all became more epic in scope. Right. And it really pays off here. And when you say good luck producing that as a writer, when you're sitting down at the computer, do you just let it fly and say, I'll, tr I'll yes. trim back if I have in this to? In this case, because the move out of to Hulu came with the dictum, we're, we're going for it. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, normally when, you know, Seth's the showrunner, if, if if I'm the showrunner and I have budget constraints, I have to be thinking about these things. I may write a first pass that's crazy, but I can't turn a draft into production that is unproducible. People have to start prepping the damn thing. You know, um, in this case, we just we just went for it, and <laughs> and right. not only not only did 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 Seth and our team. The great our great director John Kassar and everybody put together an amazing episode they actually added something that wasn't in the script uh originally when Kelly and the gang have to abandon the shuttle to get down to the surface where the quantum core is I think Andre and had them and I had them parachuting and they came up with this jetpack craziness uh that I think I never would have thought of thought of i just sort of thought it was completely 
impossible to produce. <laughs> impossible. But, uh, you know, for, for anybody who might have been thinking out there, you know, what took so long? Hopefully yeah. they, they saw what, what was going on. Right, right. Yeah. COVID, COVID plus. <laughs> Which I think is what people don't understand is the reality of why season four is not like a, a guarantee because the con the actors contracts were up. Right. And, and that's and right. I'll, yeah. And, COVID complicated stuff and three took so long to finish. Um, not just because of COVID, but because of the complexity of what was on the, you know, had to be shot. So that gives us a, a an in as we wrap things up to talk about the importance of Disney plus <laughs> um, yeah. for those of us who would like to see more Orville or, um, you know, I think the numbers on Disney plus are going to kind of do a big thing. And if people don't already know, and they should is that the Orville's coming to Disney plus um, uh, later this month, right? Um, in August, August 10th. Oh, so it'll, it'll be there tomorrow. So when we're recording this, <laughs> so before this comes out, um, so it's already there. So not only should you be binging it from the beginning and watching it again, because then, you know, the, again, this is, this shows for writers under the hood. Um, if you go back and watch it again, now you get to see how they, how the writing evolved and how things got to change from season two to three and to see kind of um, Seth and Brana and everybody unleashed. <laughs> right. Yeah. And look, we want to do a season four. I know Seth would love to do another season and we love the show. I mean, we love doing it and they're, I miss it already. So yeah. people, but people have got to, spread the word yeah you know and get people to tune in absolutely um and so on that note you're also uh working on another project right now yeah i just finished um in, in fact uh today i just wrapped everything up on a show called the end is nigh with bill not starring bill nye which is another sh uh, a show seth and i cooked up uh where it's uh, an hour long show where the first half hour is a, some kind of world ending disaster. And the second half hour is how science can save us. And um, another big special effects driven fun show uh, that drops on Peacock, a different streaming service um, on August 25th, um, all six episodes. So check that out. Well, we love uh, the end of the world. <laughs> um and, to it's, see, it's and especially world. to see how science can save us because it's, yeah it's got the it's got the uh the terrifying first half but a very optimistic second half awesome yeah um any idea if you guys are gonna expand into i know seth did a, a novella right for one of the episodes are you guys gonna expand into books comics any of that kind of stuff do you know uh i don't know yeah um, i don't know i don't know what seth has in mind um i think ideally we'd make more more it's a it's a tv show first mm. <laughs> you know but um who knows all right well um uh well i just want to say again like this season uh just really blew out my expectations i expected to like it i thought it was really great um it was super fun for me to see Shadow Realms because um, 
when you told me about it, I could see the right because I know the writer's glee of when you've got a story you love <laughs> and you can't wait to tell. And and uh, and so it was very fun for me. I had a big, stupid grin on my face watching it because I was like, oh, Brandon already told me about this one. And, and it was I, it was cool to see it realized. And, yeah. And by the way, it's, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's it is fun and unusual to uh discuss the writing process uh in in this depth so. well that's that's what i do around here um and you know the way i look at it is is that i i learn from these conversations i learn from prepping just because now i went back and watched the orville a second time season three with the eye towards thinking about what you guys were doing under the hood and that gives me a chance and i think everyone we love to watch stories, but writers out there, if you want to learn how to do these things, you got to go back and look at these things that way. And, you know, I always look at this podcast as an opportunity to, to learn from, from the greats. And uh, Brandon, you've written a lot of my favorite episodes of Star Trek. Now there's one thing <laughs> I, I avoided Star Trek until this point for the most part. But we got to talk about the animated threshold. The, the one scene, the one, <laughs> the, I, the notorious scene. Yes. Um, so some there's a guy, I don't know his name. I'm sorry. Shout out to the, the guy who does this. He did Best of Both Worlds as well. I don't know if you've seen that. But um, he made an animated, like Star Trek, the animated series version of Threshold. What was that like watching your episode, your famous Too Close to the Sun episode of Voyager? <laughs> so it's an episode where Janeway and uh, pa Paris uh, devolve into lit, uh, salamanders and uh, Chakotay and Tuvok come upon them at the swamp's edge. And this person did a fil uh, filmation style 1970s kind of crude cheesy animation version of it and it's with the actual dialogue and soundtrack and unchanged and it is absolutely uh perfect it's the better version of it 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 it, it it's it's uh it almost redeemed the episode uh it, its existence because this clip exists it's priceless and i don't think it i mean it's just so great i i watched it several times please do well, more whoever's doing these <laughs> well, although gonna... there, there'll never be a scene that's more perfect than that because that's truly a storyline that would have been relegated to the animated series <laughs> <laughs> you're too hard on threshold it 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 lives <laughs> And wait, and you know what? I didn't ask you last time. Do you, have you noticed, have you seen how much people still debate the Tuvix situation? Have you, have know. you noticed this? People are still debating Tuvix. Well, that's that was great. I mean, what more could we hope for? It was it was meant to be controversial. Yeah. I'm I with mean, Janeway. I think she made the right decision, but uh, you know. I, I think you're right, but I don't know. By the way, I, I always say about that episode, it was, it didn't start that way. It started as a more of a comedic type thing. Mm -hmm. And 
and I, I hated the, I hated everything about it. Even the, the title is stupid. The idea is idiotic, <laughs> but then if, but if you, the way we took it becomes one of, of one of the best episodes somehow, right. you know, and, and again, that's what I love about science fiction is you can take sometimes the goofiest idea and turn it into something really profound. Awesome. All right. Well, Brandon, it was uh, a delight to talk to you yeah. about Orville season three and everybody go out and watch it on Disney plus and um and is nigh august 25th uh, uh peacock august 25th on peacock um i will be spreading the gospel on that one too um i uh did you see the thing where where um there was a meme going around that was saying that um dolph lundgren had more degrees in science than bill nye <laughs> and i was like the the funny thing about it was um <laughs> I was like, wait a second now. Is that true? Bill Nye is still the science guy. Here's the thing, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not sure, I can't say for sure, but, you know. (laughs) Well, Dolph Lundgren is underrated for the amount of- Bill's a science, he, you know, he's he's a mechanical engineer, you know, by trade, but he's also a science communicator. Well, you that's know. just exactly right. I mean, there, and, there's, there's a, you know, he's not defining reality for you. He's simply communicating scientific concepts clearly. I mean, that, I mean, you don't, it helps to have, I mean, do you have to have a degree in astronomy to make an astronomical idea clear? I think uh, those people just don't, or they're just, uh, and by the way, I don't know if that's true about Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren actually has a lot of degrees in like biochemical science something, but it doesn't matter. What is true <laughs> is that Bill Nye, well, first of all, a lot of the greatest discoveries in astronomy have been made by amateur astronomers. So an- amateur astronomy is actually a big deal. Listen, Michael Faraday, who discovered electromagnetism, and, it, and we wouldn't be talking on these devices right now if it weren't for him, had no formal education and couldn't that, even do the math. He had to have uh, someone else who could do the math, prove his I- crazy ideas um, on paper. Like it, th- that, you know, I don't yeah. have a college degree. I oh, mean, oh I, I was just kidding, but I love Bill Nye. You know, I'm so ex- I, I'm I mean, so what am I doing you. writing anything having to do with science? I don't even have a, you know, I don't have a degree in anything. <laughs> well, and it's a smart move. I think, I think uh, you've found an awesome niche with helping with Cosmos. And I really appreciate the role you played in bringing Cosmos back. And um, I think having these kind of science and science fiction uh, adjacent shows is, is really great. And it's one of the great things that you're doing. So Thank I you, appreciate man. the work, sir. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to reading your new novel. Send it to me as soon as you can. <laughs> uh, hey, it's already in the mailbox. And by the time this comes out, the title's out there. So I can say The Last Night to Kill Nazis from Clash Books, May 2023. So I haven't been able to say that, Brandon, for the last <laughs> year. I've had to keep it secret. I, so. The title alone. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Um, it was great to talk to you. And uh, see you later, folks. Okay. Um, and I'm sure Brandon will be back at some point, hopefully to talk Orville season four someday. <laughs> I hope so. All right. Okay, man.